Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm joined today by Jason Miller. Some of you may be aware of Jason if you are members of RP+, and you'll be very excited that he's on the show. Others of you will now be very intrigued, and you should be. So Jason has a PhD in exercise physiology from the University of Utah. Uh, he has an MS in exercise science from Utah as well. He is the founder and head coach of Oklahoma City University and Oklahoma City Barbell Club. He has over 17 years coaching f- of athletes from numerous backgrounds and ages. Uh, He is also the author of a book called Foundational Weight Training, A Practical Guide for the Trainer, Coach and Barbell Enthusiast and has over 100 popular media fitness magazine articles. So uh, Jason obviously knows what he's talking about. Uh, He is also a competitor in powerlifting and weightlifting. Anything else you want to add there, Jason? I think that's it. I, uh, I will say though that my competitive days are probably behind me though. So when was the last competition? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's been about three or four years now. I I played college football and actually got me interested in this. Played college football, so did all the lifting associated with that. And along the way, though, did some really bad things uh, that are catching up to me now as I'm entering my my 40s. So uh, unfortunately, that part, I miss having, you know, 450 pounds on my back doing reps. But uh, uh, other than that, it's pretty accurate. But that's probably the, the... the saddest part is that whole introduction is I, I don't get to do this much anymore. Right. Uh, like, like others do. So it's, it's, uh, it's been good to be able to get into coaching and, and start to work with people that I get to still enjoy the barbell. Yeah. I think sometimes the best coaches are then those who have made the mistakes and you can yeah. help others not be there <laughs> and do those mistakes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That was when I started my doctoral work initially. It was, uh, I was a graduate assistant strength conditioning coach for a bit. And, uh, um, you know, the way we were doing things at the time was, this was, this was a long time ago uh, when we didn't have a lot of the great research we have now and a lot of great minds that we have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot more of the great minds that we have now. And, uh, you know, picking up the injuries I did over the years, that's, that was the initial you know, catalyst for me. Like, there's got to be a better way to do this than having a 16-year-old kid, you know, strapping you know, 460 pounds on his back, every, you know, twice a week for reps. Uh, and that's assumed to be the correct way to do things when a kid can't stabilize his trunk yet. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, that's, that's, was a big push for me. Yeah. Amazing. And, uh, some of the things actually that we can dig into today, hopefully, and this question might be a bit broad to start with, and I might have to try and give you a bit more guidance, but maybe, maybe it's not, uh, it was basically kind of biomechanic basics that every kind of physique competitor, our audience, mostly physique competitors, people who want to mm-hmm. build muscle. Um, sure. what are some basics you think maybe us guys should know? Well, I think a lot of times when we go to the gym, you know, you, you can look at the, if you're at a big commercial gym, you know, you can look at the floor of, of machines and uh, obviously the barbell and the dumbbells and so on. And, you know, just start to do things that um, on the surface should, you know, produce a result that you, you know, I think should happen. So for instance, you know, if you squat, um, you know, you, you do a back squat, uh, you know, the idea is that you get your legs stronger, you get your legs bigger. Um, but the way you position that barbell right on your back and the way that you position your body, maybe in uh, relation to a Smith machine or something like that, it's going to change the way that your body responds to that. Uh, you know, and the way that all the machines are laid out in a, in a gym, every single one of those machines can be adjusted a certain way, uh, whether that's the you know, position of the, of the grip, the position of where the you know, pad hits your legs or the position of where you put your body on it. You know, all those things can influence uh, the outcome of that machine. So, you know, if you're trying to develop quads more than, than glutes, 
the way you, you know, you set up the machine or the way you, you know, perform the back squat, uh, you know, it needs to be done in a way to promote glute growth rather than uh, quad growth. Uh, and so it's just some of the basics, you know, basic biomechanics. I think sometimes we, we neglect when we go to the gym. Uh, we think we're getting a certain result. Um, we, we do a certain exercise over and over again. We don't get that result. And it may be that we just never set the, the actual uh, exercise up properly. You know, if you're doing a low bar back squat because you saw it on the Internet uh, and you think, well, this is going to be a great quad developer, then you're doing the wrong exercise, obviously, uh, you know, for quad development. You need to be not doing a high bar back squat or even lean down the Smith machine a little bit in order to position the load in, in relation to the knee a little bit differently in order to create more torque on that knee and have the muscles uh, responsible for knee extension with the ones that are getting hammered when you're exercising rather than your glutes. So again, I know that's, that's a very broad, you know, kind of a synopsis of, of the gym, but that's, you know, the RP plus videos that I made on biomechanics um, and just thinking about strength conditioning in general. I think that's often something that's not well understood. I mean, you know, even a leg press, uh, if you have, ask your average gym goer, they may not understand, you know, what the leg, let's just say legs, but not really fully understanding perhaps that, it's a quad, you know, developing machine, uh, and it's all because of the way that the machine is arranged. So, yeah, that's that's when you're, you know, when you're assessing these these different pieces of equipment, um, really think about what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, the, the preacher curl, for example. Uh, you, you know, you'd say it's just an arm curl. Well, the way you position the arm in that position, uh, that particular exercise, uh, is going to put the biceps at a disadvantage, and so it's going to be a better exercise for the brachialis, you know, more so for the biceps. So yeah, that's a great thing if you're trying to develop a big biceps peak because uh, that muscle is underneath the biceps, but it's not necessarily the best biceps position uh, if you're trying to develop that muscle. So, you know, again, that, just understanding the basics of, of the arrangement of the musculature, the architecture of the musculature and the relationship uh, to your body, to the machine or the apparatus can be very helpful in developing the specific muscles that you're trying to target. So out of interest, Jason, because um, I think that was really, really valuable because I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about, they just sit in a leg press and they're just like, yeah, this is just thighs uh, and they don't really right. think about what muscle groups are really being used. But for example, like Smith machine squats, I think our audience are pretty familiar with. If you were setting up and doing a Smith machine squat for the quads, how, if you were to be doing that and instructing someone, how would you get them to kind of set up? Well, I think most people, when they set up, and again, that's kind of a broad assumption, most people, but, um, you know, they might set it up like a traditional squat, right? Because, you know, they don't lean on the bar. So you have to have that position where uh, the feet are kicked out further away from the bar itself. Uh, so that allows you to use some of the Smith machine uh, and the stability that it takes away. And so it allows you to sit up a little bit taller, almost like a front squat. Um, and so, you know, when, when we think about the basic biomechanics and trying to set up these exercises, and this will help a little bit to answer your question, is what joint do you want to target? Because our, our body is just a bunch of uh, angular machines, right? So, you know, all our motion that we create is like a bunch of gears moving in order to create linear motion. So, you know, when you when you flex and extend a knee or you flex and extend a hip, those are two gears that are moving, you know, spinning together uh, in order to move the barbell up and down. And so if you want to really target the muscles that are responsible for turning those gears, uh, the best thing to do is is position those uh, gears as far away from uh, you know, where the force is being applied as possible. Uh, and so, you know, and that's just basic torque. So if you took a knee and, and use that as your axis of rotation, how far away is the line of force from that knee? Uh, and so the further you, you move that line of force away, in this case, the barbell on the Smith machine, away from the knee, the more that the musculature around the knee is going to work. Uh, 
that's why I mentioned a low bar back squat. So, if, you know, if you do a low bar back squat, that's why in strength conditioning, you use that quite a bit as a, a way of developing glutes is because you have to sit back, the bar's low on your back. You have a vertical shin traditionally or very close to vertical shin. And so, you, you know, you push your, your hips back, uh, maybe onto a box. Uh, and that, you know, distance between the barbell and the actual hip band is further away than it is from the knee. And so the glutes are the things that are going to get, the glute musculature is the, is the musculature that's going to get more active than the exercise than quadriceps, the barbell being more on top of, of the knee in a particular position. So the, to answer your question, then the further you can move your, your feet away from the apparatus without completely leaning on the Smith machine, obviously, uh, and, and, you know, bearing the load still, because uh, you can, you know, you can, push up against the Smith machine pretty hard, right? And she you know, she with that pretty easily. But move the feet away and the knees away far enough from the barbell where you're still having that balance between, I'm not leaning on this thing so much that I'm taking a load off my legs, um, but uh, I'm in a position now that the Smith machine affords that I can be a little bit off balance uh, and have my knees far away from the barbell that my quadriceps are really gonna have to do work. So, I mean, there's old school bodybuilding exercises, right? Uh, hack squats and what we call sissy squats and things like that, that we're doing the same type of thing as moving the barbell behind the body in some way uh, and pushing the knees away from the barbell in order to make the quadriceps have to work a little harder. Some of those are a little bit harder on the knees, but um, that's why they're hard on the knees mm -hmm. because we move the barbell away from it. Yeah, excellent. And I think uh, another one a lot of people realize in terms of like helping to hit the quads a bit more is like putting their feet lower on the pad when pressing for like a leg press or something because you're just right. is that if am i right saying like you're increasing the torque around that kind of joint angle and on the quad by lowering your foot placement on the yeah. the yeah and so exactly because you're pushing your knees further away from the line of force in the sense that you're pulling your feet back underneath you and so the knees are getting further away from that line of force so you know you're creating more more stress on the knees in a sense by doing that as well but yeah you're trying you're manipulating your body's position in order to increase the amount of torque that that particular joint has to work. exactly and i think now, on the downside you have to be careful with that right i mean yeah. if you, you know uh, you do that over and over again you can you know cause obviously some the faster wear on the knee um you know than you would otherwise yeah i think uh, with a lot of them it's just a case of being aware that you don't have to, I don't know, people are getting more aware that you don't have to squat like everyone. Like everyone has slightly different right. hip sockets. They have to squat in a slightly different way. And it, <laughs> the same thing with these machines, you can almost kind of try and play around with it a little bit so that you can kind of get a bit more of a emphasis on the area that you want to play with. And that's essentially what you're playing around with is like the biomechanics of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, even if you look at something like squatting, uh, it's heavily influenced by you know, body dimensions, right? So limb length, if somebody has a really long torso and a really short femur, uh, you know, that's going to be easier for them to sit up, you know, in that position if they're doing a freestanding, you know, whether it's front or back squat. Uh, and they'll have an easier time sitting down, of course. If somebody has longer legs and a shorter torso, it's going to be much more difficult for them to sit up a little bit taller. So a Smith machine might be more helpful in that particular case in order to position their body in such a way that quads can get hit a little bit better. Uh, and so, you know, certainly that's something I've noticed over the years working with athletes and work with individuals that are trying to gain muscle mass is, is take into account limb length uh, and just the proportions of the body. Like, like I mentioned before, somebody with a long torso, uh, you know, even doing deadlifts, right? We know this, right? So if somebody has a really long torso and a shorter, lower, uh, shorter femur, um, especially, uh, you know, a quasi-sumo or partial sumo deadlift, I mean, they can pull a lot of weight off before. Uh, just because they can set up over the bar a little better and stay nice and tall. You know, um, a lot of people talk about the Chinese weightlifters. 
you know, they're all set up for the most part, that's a broad statement, but a lot of the, the, the male lifters in particular uh, have very long torsos and very short femurs. And that's very conducive to lift a lot of weight off the floor. Uh, and so the same thing, I mean, when you're trying to develop musculature is, is appreciating, hey, if I have really long arms, uh, and I think most people realize this, I have long arms, you know, I'm trying to do some chest work and using the bench press as a particular way to do that. Um, you know, that might be a little bit more difficult. It doesn't mean you can't develop chest musculature doing that, but just understanding that the way uh, the bench feels and, and, and positioning of the hands, obviously in relation to somebody else like me, I have really short arms, right? Uh, that's going to change how far the bar has to go. That's going to change potentially, you know, how the chest is activated where you put your hand grip. And that's just a lot of that stuff also just due to how long the limbs are. Excellent. And something else I think I, I would class them as kind of basic biomechanic type of ideas, at least, is that mm -hmm. talking about kind of the eccentric um, moment and the isometric and then concentric. And I'd love to hear you kind of briefly talk about what each of those mean and then maybe implications for things such as muscle damage and for hypertrophy. Why is that important to have an idea of what each of these play into that? Sure. So concept, so those are these to be called Contraction, and then they were actions. Now they're back to contraction. So, um, you know, eccentric contraction is when the muscles lengthen under tension. Uh, the isometric contraction is when the muscles is neither lengthening nor shortening, but it's under tension. That's very important. And then concentric, of course, is when the muscle is shortening. And so, you know, I tell my students, I mean, if you, without going into all the muscle physiology, you know, if you look at you know, musculature and look at the sarcomeres, I mean, that's basically what they're doing, right? So they're elongating. Under tension, that's eccentric, isometric, nothing's happening. Concentric, we're shortening down, bringing the muscle together. Um, you know, when we look at the force-velocity relationship, uh, just look at the curve then that's generated out of that relationship. Eccentric muscle contractions have the most potential for force. And this makes sense if you just think about dumbbells. You know, if you grab a dumbbell, you can do a really light dumbbell, really move very fast, that's a high-velocity movement, but the idea is that it's a lighter dumbbell. Uh, using load as a surrogate here. If you, you know, grab a heavier dumbbell that you can you know, curl up halfway, uh, you can't get all the way, concentrically you can't curl all the way up, but you can hold it in the halfway up position. You know, that's more of an isometric type of contraction, but that dumbbell is a lot heavier. You can take a really heavy dumbbell, whatever really heavy is, and you know, put it up in the position that you're already in a flexed uh, position of the, of the elbow and ride that dumbbell down. You can slow it down. That dumbbell is the heaviest of all of them in those three conditions. So idea is that the eccentric part of it as well can generate more force, which means it can be more tension. And so if you can position, uh, or you can set up an exercise in such a way that, um, you know, you're having a higher tension per rep, uh, the idea is that you increase the damage then that may occur on the muscle. It's, tradi it's traditionally said that eccentric muscle contractions will incur the most damage. Uh, and that's, pro that's probably true. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some research that says that concentric can produce some damage as well. But in terms of if you just want to make a generic statement, I would say that that's accurate, that eccentric muscle contractions generate the most damage. And the reason is, is you know, as we lengthen the muscle, um, and without getting out of the little physio physiological pieces here, uh, you know, the bigger fibers in the muscle, uh, or excuse me, the myofibers, so the myosin, I'm trying to skirt around the words, but it's sometimes harder just to just yeah. say the words. Yeah. Uh, myosin, you know, hold on to actin, and so it, you know, it's being ripped apart essentially. And so in that process of, of opening up that muscle, you know, opening up that sarcomere, you know, those two myofibrils are holding on to each other, and it's, it's stretching out the whole sarcomere structure. It's stretching out the whole cytoskeleton, and basically it's ripping in pieces. It's like, this is going to sound pretty gruesome, but it's like ripping your arms out of soccer. I mean, it's pretty, it's just tearing tissues apart. And so that's why we incur more damage when we do the eccentric side of things. 
Um, now that also is traditionally believed to be, and that probably is true, that's the catalyst for muscle hypertrophy as well, more so than concentric. And again, it's not the only mechanism, but it may be a better one than the concentric and isometric certainly uh, in producing muscle. So you know, the idea is you tear down the structure, you have to rebuild it, and we know this to be true, right? When we go through eccentric uh, contractions and we, we break the muscle down, it gets longer, uh, it gets thicker. Uh, and so you know, using eccentric contractions specifically, using a, either a super, max, a super maximal load, so I mentioned before, using something like that heavy, heavy dumbbell and riding it down each time, um, or using more time under tension, uh, so the time piece is elevated now, so doing a four-second, six-second, eight-second ride down in a squat, or you know, doing that same biceps example, uh, you know, curl the dumbbell up and then you know, lower it down over eight seconds, which is pretty brutal. Um, again, you're increasing the time component uh, rather than just the tension component. So those are the two pieces. That's how eccentric work can be used. Is if you increase that tension component by using super maximal loads, which is more dangerous, obviously. Uh, you'd have to have a really good spotter if you're doing something really complicated like a bench, uh, or increase the time under tension. The emphasis on time there by doing uh, longer eccentric contractions, you will generate more muscle damage doing that. Um, I think some people though take that and get carried away with it a little bit, and so they they do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so cycling what muscles you're eccentrically damaging is a really good idea. Um, you know, I in my own programming, uh, if you did it for a full three week cycle, then a deload without eccentric work that would be pretty a long cycle in my opinion. Uh, I think traditionally two weeks is um, one particular movement or muscle is is the best range. We're assuming here that somebody's you know already well trained. Uh, if you're just starting out, don't bother. Just do regular, you know, cadence work. Um, but if you need something that's little, you know something more of a more of a stimulus, uh, you know, you're seeing yourself kind of level off in terms of, of gains and, and you know, cross section or musculature. Doing an eccentric cycle might be a valuable one. Um, I would highly recommend as well. You know, this is where machines can be very helpful. Right. Doing these things as well. Uh, if you're not, uh, you know, feeling very very com you know, comfortable with with a certain technique, let's say in a squat or something like that. Uh, using the machine can be a much safer way to do that. If you are comfortable doing a squat and eccentric, you know, four second ride down the squat, and certainly that's a fantastic exercise, and you'll 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 you know, you'll feel it in the next you know 48 to 72 hours. So um, those are the difference between the contraction speeds, though. Uh, you know, concentric. You know, if we're talking about strength conditioning, you know, moving. Uh, we always say concentrically move as fast as you can, regardless of how long the eccentric cycle is, and even in hypertrophy, that's not a bad idea. Uh, just because the idea is that, you know, when we look at the uh, science principle of more data recruitment, the faster you move that, you know, we have our three ways hypothetically of getting to those, you know, those bigger fibers and one of them is moving quickly. So, you know, doing a four second, eight second ride down, um, I would recommend around four to six, but you do a four second ride down on squat and then come up as fast as you can. You know, the idea is you're breaking down the muscle on the way down and on the way up, you're using the neurological system to try to ramp up and grab some of those bigger fibers that are on board and activate them, maybe fatigue them a little bit so they grow. So, you know, that in one contraction, if you if you really want to break down, the, you know, uh, different ways to do it, right, uh, you know, by emphasizing just longer eccentrics and, and emphasizing faster concentrics, you could take a, a traditional rep and turn, you know, optimize it, if you will, yeah. into something that could be a little bit more of a hypertrophy building uh, repetition than before. Yeah, I really like yeah. that because I think a lot of people, 
at least you see it a lot in the gym where people are obviously in there trying to grow muscle and they have no control over eccentrics. Oh. Uh, and this is the thing that you're basically, it, it's super important because if you just let it go, the muscle isn't really doing anything. If it's not under right. control, the muscle's not doing anything. So uh, an example I see that with, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, Jason, is something like a deadlift. As a powerlifter, sure, like they're just looking for maximal kind of uh, strength on that movement to just bring it up. They're not worried about growing muscle with it. So they're kind of eccentric portion is quite often almost dropped. Uh, whereas for a bodybuilder, if they're deadlifting, do you think kind of controlling that eccentric is pretty damn important? The eccentric portion? Yeah. Of course. I mean, again, that kind of emphasizing that time component and in complicated movements like the deadlift as well, uh, you know, using an e a longer eccentric can be very helpful in ensuring proper technique as well. Right. I mean, so we talk a lot about mind muscle connection, uh, when doing exercises, you know, and that's obviously very important. You know, if you're rushing through, you know, just dropping the barbell, let's say on a deadlift, you're missing out on that opportunity to create some eccentric stress and creating that, that time under tension, but you're also missing out on the opportunity to really connect with the muscles. I mean, really feeling, depending on the style you're doing, uh, if you're doing a conventional style, you know, really cueing into the glutes, really cueing into the hamstrings as you lower the bar down uh, and feeling them contracted as you lower the barbell for four seconds right now, whatever it may be. Um, uh, if the load isn't too heavy, uh, I actually think doing eccentric type of work you know, on complicated exercise like that can be uh, actually safer and you get yeah. more out of it uh, than, you know, putting a tremendous amount of weight on the bar and just trying to pull it and then drop it. I mean, you're just getting some concentric activation out of that. Like you mentioned, if you're a powerlifter, that's fantastic because that's the sport. But if you're trying to build muscle mass, you know, you're, you're using exercise in a way that's not going to be beneficial for, for hypertrophy. And uh, in so doing, you might also hurt yourself. Uh, and so, you know, if you watch a, a, a well-seasoned bodybuilder move. I mean, all the movements are very smooth, right? I mean, they're trying to, he or she is really trying to connect with the muscles when they're, when they're exercising. Uh, their focus, you know, always impressive. You don't see a bodybuilder too many times when they're doing a, a set, you know, screwing around and talking to other people, right? I mean, they're very focused on contracting that musculature. Uh, and so even something like a deadlift, like you mentioned, is slowing it down, taking the load down, which would be a safer condition, uh, putting the ego aside, uh, and really creating that mind-muscle connection in order to activate that musculature. And, and to be honest, we can tear it up on the way down as you lower the bar. You'll see more gains out of that than rushing through the repetition. Fantastic. And I think that also plays into something that I think Mike Isratel's recently coined in terms of the stimulus to fatigue ratio, whereas mm -hmm. like that deadlift that's heavy and you're not controlling it is probably heavily fatiguing without that much stimulus for the muscle, whereas the other one is lesser load you're able to create a tremendous stimulus compared to it. So I suppose in terms of the FSR um, for fatigue to stimulus ratio, it's far superior. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Schoenfeld has talked about his, his study he did uh, that kind of pushed forward this idea that it's volume that drives gains and hypertrophy more so. I think we're all familiar with that, but you know, his study where he did a higher load versus a lower load, uh, higher repetition bout. So, you know, individuals i think it was 10 by 3 if i recall or 3 versus 3 by 10 i'm trying to remember the study off the top of my head but his point was that during the study and, and his conversation talking about the research is that and this isn't a surprise if you look the weights for a while is that the people who were doing the higher load the people in that group you know they incurred a lot more fatigue they were essentially more beat up by doing the same volume as the group that did you know they, the other group who did the higher repetitions per se was like i can do some more right i mean bodybuilders the research literature is wonderful. 
and I love reading it, but we can also take a tremendous amount away from you know, bodybuilders over yeah. the years. I mean, they've been doing research for generations, right, uh, on how to build muscle. And there's a reason that, you know, for the most part, that bodybuilders hang out in that 8 to 20 rep range uh, is because it's not neurofatiguing. It's not near as neurofatiguing as doing repetitions that are, you know, six under, close to failure, near failure. Uh, that bodybuilder can do that, you know, 30-set uh, exercise routine, right, for a particular body part and come back around and, you know, depending on how young they are and how they recover, five to seven days, nine days, and do it again. You know, if you do that same type of thing uh, with really heavy loads, uh, obviously, you know, you're, you're looking at a couple of weeks. And if you do that every five to seven days, you're looking at two to three weeks to recover now. So, and Dr. Zutel's, you know, uh, obviously got right, you know, uh, on this idea of, of trying to quantify, let's leave the neurosystem alone uh, and let's try to get to the musculature and get as many repetitions as possible, you know, done on the musculature, uh, the skeletal musculature, before we start to incur neuro fatigue. Because when that neuro fatigue starts to happen, you know, obviously that's going to limit, just like Dr. Schoenfeld found in the study, it's going to really limit the ability to repeat more volume. And that's what generates time under tension. That's what's going to generate more muscle growth. Fantastic as well. I mean, it, it's really interesting because you brought up the, the study by Brad Schoenfeld. And I think within the physique space, at least um, that I'm really within, powerlifting had a, a huge influence on a lot of uh, like uh, natural bodybuilders uh, training, uh, particularly within the scene I'm in. I don't mean to say it didn't have on other bodybuilders, mm -hmm. but particularly within the people I kind of... Uh, uh, talk to and um, interact with and I think it had a, a hugely positive kind of experience with that because of the compound lifts and focusing on progression but some of the lesser positive things are then people really focus on mechanical tension and obviously that is a massively key the key driver for muscle growth but almost to the point at which they focus just solely on the load like with the deadlift mm. and just lifting more is better and similarly to a squat um, I don't know if you'd like to talk through a squat Jason in terms of kind of people will go down and almost dive bonnet vomit and use that stretch mm -hmm. reflex um, what is that stretch reflex um, is it helping us is it a good idea or should we be controlling it a little bit more what are your views on kind of the squat for hypertrophy how do you like to see that perform generally well in, in you know this idea of stretch reflex stretch shortening cycle you know two main components uh, i mentioned you know one of is just the elastic quality of the muscle you know, and depending on who you are you have more elastic qualities in muscle than others, potentially. Uh, that's a genetic trait. Uh, and then the other side is the uh, reflex itself. So, you know, thinking about any general reflex, so you touch a hot stove, right? You pull your fingers off very, very quickly. That information that was generated at that stove was hot, uh, didn't go all the way to your brain, right? It just went to your brain stem and then it, uh, the brain stem saw that that was a high priority signal. And so it sent out a motor signal to that same musculature that received the sensory signal and said, hey, get that hand off of there. You know, if we waited to send that signal up to the brain, by the time, you know, that signal come, goes up to the sensory cortex, down the motor cortex, and out to our finger, you know, we burned our finger, you know, to a greater degree than with the reflex. So just quick what a reflex is. The same thing in our musculature is when we stretch that musculature quickly, uh, you know, uh, we generate stretch shortening cycle through the muscle spindle. And so that's, that's very helpful, that stretch shortening cycle in sports. Uh, you know, if you look at a great weightlifter, uh, especially on the female side, typically is used a little bit more, but a female athlete might catch a barbell at the bottom of a clean and balance up, you know, do a couple bounces or one bounce uh, to use that stretch shortening cycle to get out of the bottom of the squat. That extra uh, stretch generates a much more powerful return. So the greater the eccentric loading, the greater the concentric turn, 
we're all familiar with this. If you do a squat, jump, you put your hands on your hips and you lower your body down into a squat position, hold it for four seconds and jump, as opposed to just doing a counter movement jump where you're, you're going to jump higher with the counter movement jump. Okay? So that's, that stretch response is very, very powerful, important in sport. But in bodybuilding, what we're trying to, in building muscle mass, we're trying to get the musculature uh, to be under tension the whole time uh, and not use the neurological system to give us a little boost, if you will. And so I'm doing something like a squat by an Olympic weightlifter, Olympic style weightlifter, that might be a beneficial thing because the name of the game is lift more weights uh, in a bodybuilder or somebody trying to build mass, uh, keeping control of the movement uh, all the way to the bottom of the squat and on the way up and not tapping into that stretch shortening cycle is going to be much more beneficial. Um, and the, the point, going back to the eccentric contraction, the idea is to create tension and then time under tension. And so if you're, you know, if you're rushing through the eccentric part of it and just dropping into, you know, the bottom of a squat uh, and then using that stretch right and coming out of that squat, you're not creating a lot of time under tension or you're, you're taking away from your time under tension, both of those things, both the time and the tension. Uh, and so I would, again, going back to, um, you know, good technique of an exercise and while powerlifting can teach you all those things, uh, and those are fantastic things, uh, understand that's a different sport. Right? That's a completely different activity than bodybuilding. So while I might teach you how to squat, I might teach you how to do different styles of, of squatting or different styles of deadlifting, which can be beneficial in activating different musculature. Uh, the way that those exercises are performed is very important. You know, if you wanted to say something about you know, what to take away from this podcast, it would be is how you perform the exercises, right? It's very, very important. Uh, you, know, you mentioned you know, rushing through them. I see people doing bench all the time. You know, they lower the bar down and it looks like they're you know, trying to go in for heart surgery, right? <laughs> trying to split your ribs open. Uh, they're missing out completely on, on the time under tension for that musculature. They're, they're, that's great that they're working on the concentric side. Uh, for some reason, they were in a sport that <clears throat> they needed to have some high velocity movements and an horizontal uh, pushing action. Great. But if you're trying to build muscle mass, you need to make sure that you're not tapping into that stretch shortening cycle as much. All the movements are controlled. Uh, and, again, on the plus side as well, that you shouldn't get as many injuries potentially uh, in doing those type of movements because the load should be down. You should be emphasizing more of that control. So, you know, again, just kind of reemphasize myself in a squat, I control the movement all the way through. If you, walk, if you watch Dr. Isertel on his IG or any bodybuilder, he's not rushing through the bottom of those squats, right? He doesn't just drop into the squat and ricochet out of there using stretch shortening cycle. It's a very controlled movement. Uh, at the bottom of the squat, there's even a, a, a little bit more of a, um, an isometric pause uh, in order to transition to the concentric and not activate that stretch shortening cycle. Excellent. Yeah, I think that was really well explained. And uh, to kind of switch foot a little bit and talk a, mm -hmm. about some of the things that we're seeing, I think they're also used within powerlifting, but certainly they're becoming more and more common within the physique realm. It's kind of using accommodating resistance. So mm -hmm. uh, you see someone like uh, John Meadows is someone, a good example. He used like quite a lot of bands on things. I think he probably yeah. uses chains on various uh, machines and different things, or not machines, but different movements like dips or something. Uh, what implications does this have kind of talking about i guess people talk about like strength curves and smoothing them out uh, are these good are they bad what are they for a physique competitor what what utilization how should we use them so common resistance like you mentioned the bands and chains um are most common ways to do that uh you know our body works in such a way that there's a mechanical advantage and disadvantage depending on the joint's position uh so if we took it more of a system approach where if you look like a back squat 
uh, you know, as, as we're standing up, the load is stacked on top of our uh, joint. So, you know, you're top of the back squat, uh, the bars on your back, obviously, uh, you know, your hips and your knees underneath the barbell, uh, they're not removed from the barbell, meaning they're not horizontally positioned to push back away from the barbell. So we're in a really strong position. That's why you can go to the gym and you can have somebody walk out 600 pounds and think they're awesome. And then realize as they start to bend their knees, it's not such a good idea, right? We've all seen that. Maybe we've done that too. Uh, so as we start to squat, though, we move the knees and the hips further away from the barbell, depending on the style we're doing, of course. Uh, you know, that the exercise becomes more difficult. So I mentioned before, you know, the further you would move the force away from the axis of rotation, uh, the more that that joint's going to uh, have to work. So you get to the bottom of a squat, and that's the most disadvantaged position. So at the top, let's say we could do a quarter squat to a standing position with, uh, you know, 400 pounds. You know, at the bottom, though, we wouldn't be able to get out of the bottom with 400 pounds. Let's say that's our max. As the joints are at such a big disadvantage, your body's at such a big disadvantage at the bottom. So in reality, we're only working with 300 pounds at the bottom of the squat. And so as we rise, then that 300 pounds is becoming essentially less difficult or less than 300 pounds because as our joints start to come up underneath us, as we stand up the weight, if you kind of visualize that, bringing the knees underneath us and the hips underneath us, depending on the style, uh, we're starting to become in a mechanical, we're becoming more mechanically advantaged. Uh, and so, again, that where we could be squatting 400, we still only have 300 in our back. So the idea is that if we hang a chain on a bar or put a band on the bar, uh, you know, if there's a band, you squat down and the band is at its weakest at the bottom of the squat. So if you had a total of, of, of barbell weight of 300 and you had another 100 pounds of band tension on there, uh, when you got to the bottom of the squat, you'd still have 300 pounds, hypothetically, if the band was completely you know, released of all this tension, you probably won't. Uh, the idea is then you can match your strength to different positions during the exercise. That's the strength curve idea. And so while you know you may be more disadvantaged at the bottom with the regular barbell load, now the band is going to move with you. And so you smooth out the strength curves in the sense that you can apply force in the same manner all the way through that. When you could apply 400 pounds worth of force, again, I'm using the load as a surrogate here, but when you apply 400 pounds worth of force, you know, halfway up on the squat, the band now is providing 400 pounds to push against. As before, with just the barbell, it was only 300 pounds still. Uh, and so that can create more muscle tension. Again, going back to that length, uh, uh, time under tension idea, that can create more tension throughout the range of motion and making sure that the musculature is, is at its, uh, you know, if you're trying to work at 80%, it's at 80% all the way through the exercise rather than just that 80% at the bottom of the exercise, if that makes sense. And so that's where, you know, in, in the physique world, in the bodybuilding world also, that can be very helpful is that instead of just getting a lot of the great activation at the bottom of the squat and getting the attention that you want at the bottom of the squat and then not getting as much maybe halfway up, now you're getting that type of tension that you're getting at the bottom uh, on your quadriceps, especially on the way halfway up as well. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's smoothing out the load, if you will, as well. And so thus the strength that's being applied to it. Is, is smoother. And so it's creating a smoother time under tension as well. Um, and it, for physique, it's always been, or been traditionally used in powerlifting. I think Louie was the one that first started using it quite a bit. And it's bled over into a lot of things. It's not good for Olympic weightlifters, for example, uh, because, you know, they want to bounce a little. But for a physique competitor or a bodybuilder that wants to, you know, uh, create either strength or the, the tension, especially, uh, you know, throughout the whole movement, it's actually a really, really good idea. Uh, and I'm glad it's drifting into the physique world. I think it's, it could be a valuable tool uh, in, in creating more of that tension that could you know, eventually lead to greater muscle gains.
uh, in different parts of the musculature. We, if you look at the research literature, one of the things we struggle with, uh, if you look at a study on quadrus, uh, on the on quads, uh, they might do a particular exercise and then measure it only in the middle of the quad. So they might do halfway down, halfway in between the top of the knee, uh, the SIS, and, and measure. That's what they're measuring through ultrasound or whatever it is, the actual growth. But where that growth may be occurring may be lower in the quadricep, right? And that may have a lot to do with the tension was really, really good at the bottom uh, of the exercise. And so that the lower part of the VMO grew very, very well because of that. But the research study says, well, this exercise didn't work or did wasn't effective because they're measuring half, you know, halfway between uh, the two landmarks on the quadriceps. And there wasn't a lot, as much growth in that particular area of the quadriceps as it was lower in the leg. Uh, and so that's where a common existence could come in and say, okay, well, that's that you know, in an ideal world is that we can grow the quadriceps all the way through the range of motion, maybe also grow the muscle into the, you know, what we would consider the muscle belly more so as, as opposed to just different regions of the musculature, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you could be developing the whole muscle itself instead of just different regions of it, um, that you might find, you know, uh, by doing certain exercises, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think common yeah. resistance is a really good idea. I think it'd be a, a valuable tool. It's just setting it up is very difficult. Um, and if you ever work with bands, <clears throat> excuse me, and they wear, you know, if you have them wear out, so you're trying to do 50 pounds of band tension on, on one side and those bands wear out and now you got one that's doing, you know, it's pulling 40 and the other one's pulling 50. Uh, you know, those, those can be a problem. Chains, I, we use chains quite a bit in the facility I work in. When we're doing strength work, they just don't wear out as quickly. Uh, but the, you know, the application of resistance with the chain is not as good. Um, you know, we can talk a lot about chains as well as, as how you set them up, you know, the feeder chain length and, and, and where you position the actual chain load higher up, or, you know, higher or lower on the feeder chain can also be a, a major implication on, on how the musculature responds and how the body responds uh, to that particular exercise as well. So, you know, there's, there's almost some tweaking that goes on, especially with chains as well, when you look at a common resistance. So if, if you're going to use it, I would use bands. Uh, I would switch the bands out frequently, uh, at least if you're starting to feel uneven tension. Uh, and then, you know, make sure that as you go along, depending on what your goals are, you might be, find that early on uh, you're using more bar weight, right? As you, it, less, as it was less band tension. And then as you start to progress, you might move up in the band tension and reduce the bar tension a little bit. And so you might actually periodize uh, the relationship between the bar load itself and the band tension. In, in strength conditioning world, you do that anyway. <clears throat> you, know, you, you provide more band tension as you go along in order to produce better movement velocity, greater power. Uh, but I think it'd be a good idea even a physique competitor to also periodize that where there's more bar, you know, actual load moving towards more band tension and then going back down to more bar load, just like you would go up and down into the repetition continuum as well. Excellent. Yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting. It's definitely taking it's kind of of people like uh, John Meadows, obviously he's a big influence within the physique world and definitely seeing him use more so bands. And I guess they're more convenient. People can purchase those and have them in their like gym bag rather than like (laughs) taking a a (laughs) big old chain. Yeah. Not the easiest facility. I mean, chains are nice just because we can, you know, they're they're cheaper in the sense you buy them once. Yeah. And they, you can abuse them and they're not going to, you know, have the problems I mentioned before or, they lose some of their tension or you know, they start to wear <clears throat> they'd replace but yeah they're not terribly convenient if you're the one toting them into the gym uh, it's probably gonna be a better idea to use uh, use some band tension and, and again the bands are smoother too if you use them you can um the, the tension throughout the movement is much more uh, uh consistent than with the bar with the actual chain work mm-hmm. so 
um, I would recommend the bands if you're going to use some accommodating resistance. If you know, and if if you have some back issues, uh, you know, something that's and back squats and things like that, just be aware too. It creates a tremendous amount of compressive load on the spine. Uh, so you might, so some people might find that they can't go too high in the band tension uh, just because it causes a lot of issue, you know, compression. I mean, you know, a really a new and nice band would create a tremendous amount of tension if you've ever worked with them before. I know you have, but, um, you know, for those starting out, I would make sure to start on the lower end of the tension, um, depending on what bands you're purchasing. They're all cover coded depending on the amount of tension they're supposed to exert. So um, I would definitely start on the lower end first, get used to them. It's obviously a different movement, uh, feels different, um, but it does generate a really nice, uh, you know, consistent amount of tension throughout the range of motion. You pile on eccentric work on top of that too, uh, and you really you can have a pretty good workout uh, from using bands. Yeah, I was going to say, is there anything to having almost? I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but too smooth a strength curve. In that, I think um, it's been shown that kind of stretch under load is like an indirect hypertrophic stimulus so if it's just feels really kind of smooth and there's no kind of bits where it's like a bit like difficult do you think you're missing out on anything is that why you kind of suggested potentially periodizing them yeah and that's that's one of the reasons to periodize them for sure um keep in mind that some of that tension uh if we're talking about the eccentric side um if you use bands and, and eccentric contractions you're going to create that's that stretch stimulus, right? I mean, so, I mean, you can use the uh, movement speed then also to help generate that type of stretch that you're looking for. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying you can get around it that way, but you can also emphasize that stretch a little bit more than, you know, emphasize the stretch with the bands a little bit more by going slower than if you did, you know, the bands through a, a higher velocity. So um, periodizing it for sure, and then using the different uh, different movement speeds is a fantastic way to do that. Um, one of my favorite exercises kind of playing off of that, if you take the bands off for a second, uh, is partial squats. And I, I call them W squats. <clears throat> and I've seen these in the physique world and actually um, modified them a bit when I work with athletes and we use them as well, but for a different purpose. But, you know, sitting into a squat and this can be done with any movement. Uh, and again, partials, I'll put a caveat on this first. If you're, just starting out, don't bother. Right? Full range of motion movement is the best way to do things. There's no doubt about it. But within a movement, within a repetition, sometimes you can generate more time under tension again. Uh, and some of the stretch that you're talking about uh, in modifying, you know, the repetition itself. That's, you know, again, that's what I keep going back to is how you perform the repetition is a big deal. Uh, so if you sat in a squat, W squat, partial squat, I mean, I'm sure many have tried this. Go all the way down the squat, come halfway up, and then come back down into the squat again. Uh, you know, so that coming back up and then lowering the body down again, even under control is going to create that, that really rapid stretch. And so it's going to tear the muscle apart. Essentially is what we're talking about when we're talking about stretching it. Uh, and then coming back up, that could be one full repetition. Again, imagine how much more time under tension you're also incurring when you're doing that. Obviously, you have to be careful. We talk about the neuro side that you don't reach a point where you're doing it. You don't want to do 10 reps of this. Uh, but doing a very smooth repetition transition. So again, coming down, halfway up, coming down again that up and then down movement, that partial rep embedded within the normal repetition is going to create that stretch. Uh, and that, if you've ever done a W, what I call it, but if you've ever done a partial repetition embedded in a full repetition, the DOMs that come off of that, the, the muscle damage that come off of that is significant, uh, even if you're a well-trained individual. So those are some of the things to try as well 
I'm not a big partial person. I'm not saying you should always do partials. Certainly don't do partials, uh, you know, using a lot of momentum, not advocating that. But I am saying is if you're trying to tap into these small mechanisms, these other mechanisms, like you're mentioning, those are ways to do it as well. Uh, You know, the bands and something like that may not be as effective. So, you know, allowing that stretch to occur uh, without the band tension to smooth it out like like you're implying would be a really good idea. Use real load in order to do that. That makes sense. Yeah, there's so many variables, right? I mean, that's why research struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, we always try to find these optimal ways to do things in the research literature. But I mean, there's within we're just talking about repetition execution. We're not even talking about you know, programming or you know monthly cycle, mesocycles, you know, macro cycle. We're not even talking about that. We're talking about repetition execution and you know how you set up repetition, the cadence of which you do the repetition. You know whether you're using accommodating resistance or not. Uh, whether you're trying to create more stretch on the muscle in a rapid manner without using the stretch shortening cycle. I mean, there's so many things that can go into this, obviously. And for the, again, I want to overwhelm the person that may be just kind of starting out. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners are just starting out, but, um, you know, just stick with the basics, the regular cadence, you know, you don't do all these advanced methods, but if you do need, you know, something more in your training, if you're, if you're seeing yourself plateau and, and, you know, you obviously volume, increasing volume is the best way to do things. Um, but you wanted to try some of these different cycles. I mean, there's, there's a lot of tools out there in other words. And I think that's what we're talking about today. There's a lot of things you can try in order to generate more stimulus in the muscle to make it grow. Whether it's eccentric, common resistance, uh, doing partials within full repetitions or just doing partials themselves. Uh, I would still recommend doing a full repetition and as part of that workout if you get a partial. Um, there's just a lot of ways to do this. Yeah, I think that was really well said because we kind of went from the basics every physique competitor should know to some advanced ways to go yeah. about things, which I think is fine. But uh, obviously, a lot of people end up jumping too far and they haven't got the foundations in place. So I think that was really important. Um, and it, I was interested, actually, when you brought up the W squat, it reminded me of maybe um, some people recommend and sometimes utilize, like, obviously, we talked about maybe like utilizing different tempos. So you might do like tempo squats where you go slow, but also pausing in the stretch position. Is that also something you've utilized for that same kind of reason? Uh, more so, my thought with with isometric work and pauses is um, we you know we know from the force velocity relationship that that can generate more force as well. So you're generating some high force movements when you're holding it. Uh, neurologically, um, you know you can generate a little bit of post activation potentiation. It's a little bit more pre activation potentiation in that particular example. But I think in the physique world, <clears throat> one of the benefits is a little bit of muscle suffocation, right? And so we talk a lot about. Um, you know, and there's a lot of arguments, right? Does this matter or doesn't matter? But in those pause movements, you know, when that muscle's contraction, you're, you know, throughout the whole movement, of course, you're compressing the vasculature. But when you're doing pauses uh, and doing isometric holds, you're really compressing that vasculature. And so, you know, you're creating even more time under tension, but you're also creating a situation where you can be suffocating the muscle for a longer period of time. And that may be, depending on who you ask and who wants to argue over it, that may be also a catalyst for generating more muscle growth. So you're throwing in, I think at that point too, not only the, just the time under tension issue, but you're also trying to bring in now a little bit more of the muscle physiology, right? By adding that extra time, uh, an extra suffocation point, if you will, that's the word that I use. It's probably not a good physiological word, but uh, you know, we're you know, to that point where um, you know, you're, you're trying to have two stimuli going in at once, essentially, right? You're breaking the muscle down and then you're also not allowing it to breathe. And so we stimulate muscle growth. Now that we can get into sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and mild, you know, myofibrillar virtue, all that later. That, that's another great debate. But um, 
I think that's where pauses can be very valuable as well. Uh, and then just simple execu- execution of the muscle and mind-muscle connection, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, if, you, if you're rushing through the movement and you're not pausing, uh, or you feel like you're rushing through movements, maybe adding a pause in might be a really good idea. So I, I keep using the squat as an example, but when you're at the bottom, of a, if you're doing a high bar back squat, you can really cue into the glutes, you know, can you feel your glutes on when you're in the bottom of that movement? And a pause is a great way to do that, to make sure that you are feeling the musculature, you're connecting with the musculature that you're actually trying to exercise. Um, you know, you can combo that too. And I would, when we talk about the neuro fatigue and, and just total muscle damage, I, I wouldn't do a tremendous amount of repetitions of doing things like a six second ride down and a four second hold, right? I mean, that's a brutal repetition. Uh, you're talking about a finisher rep, maybe, uh, rather than like, you know, I'm going to do four sets of five doing this. You, you wouldn't survive. I mean, you wouldn't want to survive that, right? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you can, again, it's just manipulating the cadence, manipulating the way you execute the movement. Um, can certainly generate a tremendous amount of tension and a tremendous amount of fatigue associated as well. So just use those things carefully. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, getting the basics right and go back to that for a second. You know, uh, I heard this uh, term many times uh, as a coach uh, in different settings, and I think it's a it's a really good term. Is not major sense not majoring in the minors, right? As we focus on the smallest things, I think Doctor Zertel was really good about promoting this idea too. Is you know, all these these great partials and like I mentioned, all these things we've been talking about today are fantastic. They really are. But if you can't execute a squat very well, or you are not executing a lot of volume right now, or you know you haven't been ramping up the volume first in order to figure out if you're growing, you're not, you know, your diet's not in order. All these other things, doing all these little things, these extra things, which can put you over the top, which can generate a little bit more muscle. It doesn't matter, right? All these other, these little minor things don't matter uh, if we're not doing the movements correctly to start with, if we're not you know, uh, using enough volume to start with. Uh, and so, and you, you touched on that already, just making sure that your listeners know that this is not, these are not things to use uh, right away. And these are not things that have to be used necessarily, you know, changing up the cadence and so on and so forth. Um, you know, going to the gym and, and creating a little variety in your routine, just in the muscle exercise selection, that's a very powerful thing as well. Uh, and then, you know, applying more volume to the exercises that may be all that somebody needs to grow. And, you know, as you know, um, most of the time the diet too is the biggest problem, right? You know, I'm not growing, I'm not growing. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm eating, you know, hundred grams of protein once a day. Yeah. Well, that's, that's not going to get it done if you want to grow muscle, especially if you're going to be natty, right? So that's just not going to happen. So, um, you know, I, I think these training ideas are really, really great, but just making sure we're majoring in the majors first before trying some of these things out. Yeah, I think, again, super important that you brought that up because it is when people are hearing this and maybe they are really new, it can be massively overwhelming. Uh, And I think Mm -hmm. for good reason, not many people need to actually start incorporating them until they know how to progressively overload. And they've been doing that for years with just a back squat. Uh, And like you said, actually, of interest, I think there are a lot of physiques that you could probably pick out out there that have never used accommodating resistance. They probably never used anything that we've talked about there. Um, And variation through muscle, uh, just different exercises can achieve a lot. I was just thinking for like the quads. um, When we're thinking... not many exercises really kind of challenge it in the shortened position, but if you throw in a leg extension, you've kind of, maybe you've changed the resistance profile, like you've smoothed out the kind of resistance profile for the quad via just variation in that sense. Exactly. Yeah. And I, 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 exercise selection is one of the most powerful variables, in my opinion, 
for a physique competitor, for any any individual athlete or whatever it may be, but for a physique competitor, I mean, I'm going back to where our first topic was, you know, thinking about different machines I was trying to get out with. You know, if you look at all these different machines, you could have four different bicep curl machines. And you just, oh, I do this one because I like it. Okay, well, the way you position the arm is going to change, obviously, how that arm is, that's what I was getting at earlier, is how that arm uh, functions. So, now you think about a draper curl, right? Um, so taking a barbell and doing a forehead curl, right? Well, the reason that's a little bit different than doing uh, a preacher curl, like I mentioned before, is that draper curl is shortening the biceps in two ways. It's creating arm flexion or elbow flexion, and then it's creating shoulder flexion, right? And so the biceps are two-joint muscle, and so you're hypothetically shortening it down in two ways. You're on both ends of the muscle is being shortened. So that's a, that's a decent biceps exercise, right? That's why an incline you know, bicep curls are one of the best bicep builders because you're stretching the biceps uh, with your arm behind you. You know, you're in shoulder hyperextension until so that biceps is stretched already. And so in a sense, elongated position, you curl that barbell up. And hypothetically, you did a draper curl out of that. Uh, well, you know, you're talking about maximal lengthening, maximal shortening, and also probably do that over a couple of weeks. You also get some biceps tendinosis. But um, the idea is that, you know, that's a different than a preacher curl. Again, it's more brachialis driven because the the biceps in the position where it's not as activated uh, by being in shoulder flexion, and so you get more brachialis work. So you know, bodybuilders. I, I always like to read the old literature. Some of these old bodybuilders, right? Uh, back, of course, Arnold, but there's there's so many others. Uh, you know, and look at their training regimes, and they weren't terribly uh, complicated in the sense of what the, the variables we're talking about here. They were just one really good at, at execution of their diet, and number two, they just had a lot of exercise variety and then they, they put a bunch of volume to that. Right. Um, and they, you know, looking back at those physiques, they look like, you know, Dave Draper looked pretty good. Right. In 1965. Right. So, I mean, you know, they, they were very successful in doing these things uh, without a tremendous amount of the other. And they may, I have no idea if they experimented a lot with those other things. I have no idea, but, you know, looking at their, just their programming and, and the way that things were done back then and done successfully. It's just volume and a lot of exercise variety. Uh, and the variety part's also nice because it does help with staleness as well, right? If you go to the gym and do you know, lateral raises over and over and over again, uh, you know, just by changing the angle by doing an incline can change the way the musculature is recruited, obviously, but also can be a nice stimulus mentally, which is a big deal uh, to get you excited about training that day and doing your four sets of 10 a little bit differently. So, you know, there's a lot of power in exercise variety and certainly hitting musculature differently, but also on the mental side of things as well. Mm -hmm. And Jason, the, the final thing I wanted to talk to you about today was uh, PAP. So post-activation potentiation, you brought it up a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd just love to hear you kind of explain that and potentially any application that you see towards uh, any lifters, but particularly physique competitors, if there's mm -hmm. anything there. So post-activation potentiation, um, you know, it, it's sometimes regarded as a new phenomenon, but if you go back to Yorovo Koshansky, like in the 1960s, the old sports scientist, Soviet sports scientist, um, you know, he, he started this, he started messing around with this idea. Uh, he's also the one that started the shock method, which we turned into plyometrics uh, as well. Um, but the idea is that we, we load the muscle uh, with a non-fatiguing load. That's, that's a high enough stimulus. So let's, again, using our squat example, since we're long at that, 80% uh, back squat. Not to failure though. So you might be able to, you know, pull, depending on the athlete you are, you might be able to pull off a back squat at 80% between six to eight reps. Uh, and so you only do it two or three. So you want to stay far away from fatigue. 
uh, you're potentiating the muscles, what you're doing post-activation, potentiation. So after the activation, after potentiation, we're going to do some sort of activity after that. So in a back squat, obviously, uh, you know, it looks a lot like a vertical jump right, in terms of the joint movement. So you can back squat at 80% non-fatiguing repetition uh, and then go jump. Uh, let's say you're going to do five repetitions. Uh, the, the amount of time in which you rest in between is also very important. That's been researched heavily. Uh, goes back to Yuri, figured that out uh, a long time ago. It was four minutes is optimal. Eight minutes is the best. It's just not terribly practical. Uh, but four minutes is a good time to, you know, you do your two repetitions, you wait four minutes, which is not terribly practical at times either. But you wait four minutes and then you do your vertical jump. And you'll jump higher as a result of doing that, that uh, activation or first. So you potentiate the muscle. Then you, you activate it by doing something dynamic like jumping. You actually jump higher. Uh, you know, whether that happens, you know, whether that improves the vertical jump over time, uh, we don't have a tremendous amount of research yet to say that that's a valuable tool, you know, over the course of 12 weeks. It probably is, you know, an overspeed training of any type that's beneficial when you go faster than you're, you're accustomed to, or you jump higher than you're accustomed to, you're teaching your neurological system something, right? You're like saying, Hey, you can do this better. We can break through this barrier, uh, you know, in order to, to jump higher without the potentiation that's occurring with the, with the, squat in this particular example. And this can, this can be done with any movement. It doesn't have to just be a squat and a jump. Um, you know, it's been applied to sprinting. It's been applied to upper body movement. It's been applied to a lot of various different uh, you know, planes of movement as well. Uh, you know, rowers have used it with an isometric, you know, tied up a rowing handle on an erg and just pulled really hard for five seconds, uh, you know, in rounds doing that, they're potentiating the muscle. And uh, the physiology behind that, I, you probably have a good grasp on it. Uh, probably not. I mean, you know, five years, I probably realized that it was, like full knowledge, really don't know what's going on. Um, but uh, we're more likely loading calcium into the muscle, so you're kind of priming it by doing the the initial uh, movement, and then when you do the dynamic movement, the calcium's already on board, and that basically the, the excitation level of that muscle is lowered, so it's easier to activate. It's faster in its activation pattern, unless you get a greater power output. In terms of physique com uh, competitors and building muscle mass. You know, when I look at PAP on the surface, I don't see, you know, it, to me, it looks more like a sports performance tool. Uh, it looks like something that, you know, again, to improve your vertical jump, improve your running faster. Um, you know, you could string a bunch of movements together because um, even a dynamic warm-up, that's more of a pre-activity activation. You know, it's not necessarily traditionally a PAP movement, but any type of movement, though, where you're moving, you know, like a dynamic fashion, then you go to lift weights. We know from the research literature that dynamic uh, warm-ups are more beneficial and, and, and better for than performing dynamic movements after. So I, what I'm getting at is I think that plays into the, the importance of warming up, right? And that seems kind of silly. It's like, well, how did we get from, you know, improving my vertical jump to warming up? Well, if we're going to apply it to the physique world, I don't see a terrible, uh, I don't see the linkage. Maybe somebody a lot smarter than me could see a linkage between doing PAP for a bodybuilder. But I think it emphasizes the importance of, doing adequate warm-ups to make sure the muscle, you know, if we're trying to climb the ladder and the size principle, make sure we're doing adequate warm-up when we get to those top sets of flat sets or target sets, whatever you want to call them, you know, that the muscle is such a way it's primed, it's potentiated as much as it can be in order to be optimally recruited. So take an adequate warm-up as you build up to those target sets is going to be important. And again, that might sound a bit silly, but I see people do, you know, sets from repetitions, you know, routines all the time where you say four sets of 10. It's like, well, I'm just going to jump in and do four sets of 10 after this really, you know, uh, I did five reps at 60%. I'm just going to get right to it. It's yeah. like, well, yeah. you know, part of that is not just warming up. 
uh, you know, all the you know, snowmobile fluid and of course core temperature, all those different things, but some of it's also the neurological system. It's getting that neurological system primed, and this is more pre-activation potentiation, but getting the more the neurological system um, warmed up and, and potentiated. So when you go to those top sets, you're not wasting maybe a set, still warming up when you should be working into your target sets and your sets that you're trying to create that time of tension and break the muscle down. So again, somebody a lot smarter than me probably could say, hey, PAP could be used in uh, with physique competitors in this particular way, but I don't see the application necessarily um, being one that can be directly translated unless you're interested in doing some sports performance. But certainly a good warm up is, is implicated in something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad yeah, you really touched on the warm up. It's something um i i've seen used for ages within like just general physique warm-ups and something i've utilized is kind of starting with say we're talking about squats the bar and then using working towards your top end weight adding percentage and lowering repetitions low fatigue repetitions and then maybe doing a single right. with your working weight and that's almost your kind of like your pre-activation your potentiation exactly. set um i think i think i've seen some physique competitors trial like doing a kind of easy one rm or like a easy one rep and then coming down in load um but like you said it's the, the application is it's not kind of clear yet so yeah and i think what you just said there that again that's what, that's what my plan is, is a good warm-up is yeah is getting that neurological system ready to go before you do high volume work um at the end of the day we're at least initially we're trying to get after those big you know muscle fibers those big motor units now we want them all of course and that's you know uh, we want every single one of them hypertrophy that's what you're gonna get you know, nice gains in size, but going after those big fibers, we know they grow the fastest and they grow the biggest. And so, you know, priming the neurological system already be kind of at their doorstep before you start to do some of your high repetition loads can be very, very helpful. And there's a lot of, of debate about, you know, the size principle and doing re- uh, fatigue work too. And so it could be that, um, you know, the traditional thought is that you do, you know, sets to failure, you do like a hit training, not HIIT, but HIT. Um, you do hit training, you know, you do these repetitions of failure that recline the size principle ladder. And at the end, when we're totally fatigued, you know, we recruit the big guys, the, you know, the, the type two X's, if we have any on board or the type two A's, and we don't know about those anymore, right. With Dr. Galpin and stuff. So, um, you know, we recruit the biggest fibers though that we have or the hybrids or whatever they are at the end. But in the reality, when we do these lower repetition loads, these submaximal loads for fatigue type of work, maybe it's not to, to failure, we may be just cycling the motor units. And so we might not be climbing up and getting those big motor units necessarily. So doing an adequate warm-up, like you said, running up to a 1RM, uh, and in a sense, a post-activation potentiation type of situation or pre-activation potentiation situation, running up to an RM, at least activating those big motor units first uh, could include them perhaps. Again, I'm just totally just, you know, hypotheticals here. Could perhaps include them more so when you do the submaximal work. If that makes sense. So I, I think there's a lot of questions, right? We don't, we don't really know a lot of these answers. I won't even try to pretend that I know them because I, I don't know them either um, of how the neurological system acts. I mean, it's probably just like Dr. Galpin saw, it's, it's going to be different between people. It's going to be different between training backgrounds. I mean, there's, there's so many things that are part of this, but um, I don't think it's, it's a bad idea to work up to a heavy load. Again, prime the muscle, make sure it's warmed up neurologically, then start to, you know, drop the loads on it or drop the volume on it, excuse me. Uh, you know, doing the target sets, whatever it may be. 
Jason, I want to say a massive thank you for today's chat. I found it incredibly interesting and this is some stuff that we've never touched on the podcast before. So I think it's going to go down incredibly well um, and we should hopefully get some really positive feedback. And I want to make sure if if people want to reach out to you or if, if they're able to or if they can learn more about what we've been talking about from your stuff, where should they head? Uh, you can contact me. You can always contact me through RP, of course. Um, uh, my... Um, Email, which is always, you're always more welcome to contact them. Maybe I'm inviting a lot of trouble by doing this, uh, is uh, jason at renaissanceperiodization.com. Uh, so you're more than welcome to shoot me an email if you have some questions that may you know, be uh, come to your mind after you listen to this podcast. Hopefully I didn't, hopefully I didn't say anything that I'll regret later. So <laughs> we'll have to see. You never know when you talk, right? I mean, you know, when you talk to students, they're like, you said this. You're like, I, I did. I said that. Oh, wow, that's terrible. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, if I if I said anything uh, outside of the realm of good scientific theory, I just would apologize ahead of time. Um, you know, it's eight o'clock in the morning and I'm on vacation, so I'm, I'm making excuses already. Right. So that's 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 going to be helpful for me later. <laughs> we should just have this disclaimer ahead of every single podcast exactly. that we release, especially for my own episodes that I do, because I definitely <laughs> fall into that trap of saying something I completely regret. Yeah, I, I, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> it's like a bad conversation. Yeah. So I feel like I'm talking to my wife, right? I, I didn't mean it that way. Was, you took that out of context. <laughs> Guys, I want to say a massive thank you for you tuning in and listening to this. Again, massive thank you to Jason. And we will talk to you soon.